0: to the Ray Harryhausen podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacies of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives exclusive announcements and competitions, so this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic
1: filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. For this episode we're having a bit of a, a summer special, a bit of a compilation of all the various activities and announcements that we have. For this warm summer of 2018, my name is Connor Heaney. I'm the collections manager for the foundation, and I'm joined by trustee John Walsh. Hello, John.
0: Hello, Connor. How
1: are you doing? Yes, I'm very well and very busy. We've had quite a busy summer so far altogether, and it's not going to let up. We have so many different uh, projects and so many different exciting pieces of news to announce for the rest of the year, Uh, so it's all been lots of fun and I'm looking forward to discussing some of those things in this episode.
0: Absolutely, and we'll be hearing some other voices. Um, Author, journalist and broadcaster Richard Hollis will be giving us an inside look into Harryhausen the movie posters and will be giving us an exclusive announcements as well about that. And uh, you did a very special interview, didn't you, with two very special ladies um, known to the foundation, Connor, didn't you?
1: That's right, uh, Caroline Monroe and Vanessa Harryhausen. Um, I was lucky enough to, to go for a meal with these two lovely ladies uh, last month. And during our discussion, we realised that Caroline and Vanessa have been friends now for 45 years, ever since first meeting on the set of The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And to mark that, we recorded a special interview where the two caught up with one another about this long friendship that they had. Of course, uh, uh, Caroline spoke about meeting Ray for the first time. And their later work with the foundation so it was it was great to, to hear them both and to to get to spend some time with the two of them um, so we're going to hear a little bit of that interview later on. So we kick off with Richard Hollis broadcaster writer
0: and journalist and he gives us an inside track into writing his brand new book Harry House and the Movie Posters and I started by asking him how long it took) <music> So, Richard, good to see you again. When we last met you, you were just embarking on the Harryhausen poster book. And
2: now the hard work's all finished. The The book's complete. And how has it been? Well, it's been a lot of fun and it's taken a long time. I mean, you say we last spoke about this at the beginning of 2017, didn't we? And here we are, like, coming up to the summer of 2018 and the book's finally finished and gone to the printers. Uh, it's been a long journey, but it's been good. It's been really, I suppose, um, I suppose it's been, it's, been, it's, been, it's been the subject of of study, just finding the posters, meeting the people who've got the posters and trying to collate the ones I wanted for the book. So um, yeah, the work's been hard, but it's been an adventure. Uh, and I think people are going to be really pleased when they see it. And they're going to be delighted with the kind of posters we found. And they're going to be surprised. Of course, I was too, because I know a lot of the posters pretty well, but we came across some very rare items. And uh, and I think that's going to astound many of our readers. It hasn't been that easy photographing the posters for the book because they're very large
0: and and the sort of technical implications you can't just do it with a mobile phone can you?
2: Well you can but the trouble is the quality is not good enough because a publisher will want a certain type of quality for uh, a certain kind of quality for a for a book or even for a magazine as such and for the posters we wanted actually to be photographed um, we needed to get it done usually by a professional photographer fortunately we do know one or two photographers uh, I can mention them by name Mark Morstan and Andy Johnson um, and both these guys were great at actually doing the work we needed because we would provide them with a poster or a collector would actually visit them on our behalf with their prize possession. And um, and these guys have got the facilities, the studio facilities to be able to put these posters on display and actually take high res photographs of them. Um, and they would take a number of photographs probably because we want to try to check the lighting and the gradient on the colours, make sure we've got just the best possible version. Um, And then we can scan that in any way we want to and use that in the book where appropriate. Uh, But of course, some posters, as you say, are very large. I mean, a six-sheet poster is enormous. It's the sort of poster that you'd find on the side of a wall. Um, And this would be made up of six different American one-sheet posters or a 24-sheet poster. Fortunately, we didn't have to photograph any of those. Um, But a six-sheet poster is a very large poster. So a photographer like Andy, for example, might decide to photograph that in six sections And then it would be very cleverly stitched together in Photoshop. Um, Or it might be possible, depending on the size of the poster, if it was a three-sheet poster, he might be able to actually display the entire poster on the wall of his studio and photograph that in one go. Um, And that needs a little bit of work too, because you have to make sure the poster's fitted together correctly. So it it might be that the the split for the different parts of the poster, three-sheet usually comes in two parts. The split is probably across the title. So you've got to make sure that it's just put together very carefully so the wording doesn't look odd. Um, And so it's it's a lot of work. There's a lot of work involved, a lot of patience needed. And I'm very grateful to those guys who spent so much time and effort um, making the post in this book look so fabulous.
0: Now, you mentioned Mark Mawson and Andy Johnson. They're not just uh, fanboys and and photographers. They were friends of Ray Harryhausen as well. So there's a lot of goodwill at play there. How much do you feel that that's been a part of the book, you know, finding... The goodwill that Ray Harryhausen has with uh, with fans.
2: Well, being a f- friend of Ray's myself for many years, I, I think this was the marvellous thing about it. We were a bit like the old gang getting together and just remembering Ray and how much we liked him and what we thought about him and uh, what a sort of great guy he was. Um, and I think it was lovely just to talk to Mark and Andy just about their experience of knowing Ray as well. Um, and of course, because they knew him and because they liked his films, they were incredibly enthusiastic for the project like I was. So uh, not only could we just go and look at these photographs and or look at these posters being photographed, we could actually share in the adventure. So they had their own posters, which they were happy to lend to the collection for the book. Um, so that was handy as well. And, I, and it gave me an opportunity to, to actually widen my circle of Ray Harryhausen friends, uh, because I just realized just how many people love the guy. And it was just great to be able to sit back and talk about him.
0: Now, you've been a writer and journalist and broadcaster in, in this area for, for many, many years. So um, were there any surprises for you? You know, was it did it feel like a, a just another book project?
2: Um, Well I suppose it's a different kind of book it's uh, it's I mean I suppose the idea originally was that we probably have just a very short introduction in the book and it would just be a picture book so of course a poster book is a picture book so that's what we thought but as it dawned on me being that I've worked in the sort of media as well as doing BBC radio magazines writing books I've written some books on the Disney organisation I think it was quite interesting that um, here was an opportunity to do more with this book, to actually break the book down and talk about each film individually. I mean, the 16 movies that Ray was involved with. Uh, and so it was quite nice to be able to introduce each one of them, maybe to put into some perspective what they actually meant and how important they were and the time in which they were made. And that made the posters seem more important, too, because the posters also reflected sometimes the periods in which they'd been, been prepared. Um, so yeah, I found that background, um, in what I've been doing as a journalist was very useful in putting together what I think is a very different kind of poster book to anything that's been done before. So, um, have there been many poster books like this? Because
0: there's a James Bond poster book and and there have been other poster books, but, um, this is quite unique
2: really in many ways, isn't it? I think it's the first poster book about an individual. I mean, I'm sure someone can probably contact me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of another... Poster book, and there are many books about film posters. There are lots of them, but they're usually assorted poster books. Uh, they might they might sort of generalise on thrillers, or science fiction, or horror. Science fiction horror being the most popular. And I know there's a poster book as you say on James Bond, the James Bond franchise. Um, there's a poster book about the art of Saul Bass, um, and there's the Hammer poster book. Um, but I think on an individual, and a, and an, an individual who wasn't a film director who was actually um, a technician, I think this is the first time that a poster book of this sort has ever been done. Um, And I think that makes it quite unique. Um, And of course, also that I suppose that's the thing we have to remember about Ray's films, isn't it? Because anybody who's listening to this podcast will know that all Ray's movies were directed not by him, but by other people. And usually when you think about the film industry, people tend to think about people's films from who directed them. But we don't think about that with Ray. We just think about all these different films by different directors but they're just Ray Harryhausen's films.
0: Now, there's a very special event coming up on the 26th of August at the BFI at the South Bank. Um, What details can can you tell us about that at this stage?
2: Well, we're very pleased that the British Film Institute want to get involved with the promotion of the book, and they're actually holding a special event on Sunday, the 26th of August, in the afternoon. And this is going to be a screening of two um, films about Ray. One is a very rare border television interview with Ray. I think it's okay for me to say that. It's uh, very rare, people won't have seen this. And uh, and the other is a, a piece of film, a, a film made by my good friend, John Walsh, who happens to be holding this microphone, um, about Ray's career. And then after those films have been screened, I'm gonna be doing a PowerPoint presentation in one of the NFT cinemas, talking about the book, how it was created, showing a lot of the posters we've used in the book up on the screen, giving people a chance to see some of these fabulous posters even bigger than they are in the book, It's gonna be great. Uh, I'll take questions and answers from the audience. So I hope we get a nice big audience to come along and see this event. And then afterwards, we're, which is very exciting, we're gonna be actually signing copies of the book in the BFI bookshop. So if you haven't had a chance to pick up the book beforehand, or even if you have, um, I'll be there to sign some copies and we can chat about Ray, which I know is everything we want to do.
0: <laughs> now, the book itself is available as a pre-order on uh, Amazon and it will shortly be available on Tyson Books. Um, you must have been very thrilled because um, it went to number one on Amazon for their pre-orders for films, uh, film books.
2: Yes, it did. Well, it it was actually quite interesting because it went to number one in their um, pre-orders for sort of film stroke history books. And it was fascinating to see that Ray's book was number one um, and the second book uh, in the list was about Dunkirk. So it's quite an interesting variation of subjects in this top 20 list. And how fabulous that Ray's book is at number one. I wish we could have... uh, I wish Ray could have been here. We could have told him that. He would have been thrilled, of course. And of course, that's the first edition printing. So if
0: people are keen to have there's only you know, you know one chance to buy a first edition and that is for the first printing so it's really important that people if they want the first edition they sort of get on with uh, getting their pre-order yes i'm sure that's
2: true john and i think the thing is because uh, this first edition is going to sell so well that um, don't worry too much if you do miss out on the first edition because i'm sure type books are going to rush and put out a second edition almost straight away
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's hoping thanks very much richard you're welcome john thanks <music> So, Connor, that's um, a, an interesting, fascinating look into into this new book. And, of course, you've seen a preview of it yourself as well. What did you think?
1: Well, yes, the, the, it's going to be a book that all Ray Harryhausen fans and fans of cinema in general are really going to enjoy. As Richard mentioned in his interview there, it's more than just the posters themselves. He gives a lot of uh, background information and context for all of the artwork too. And it looks wonderful. I mean I obviously was involved in assisting in a small part by by preparing some of the posters for Andy Johnson to photograph for Richard but even still some of the artwork which emerged from fans around the world is incredible and yes it's going to be a real treat when the book is released in September.
0: Now if you want to get tickets and come and see Richard talking at London's BFI at the end of August then you can log on uh, to the BFI's website and book yourself a ticket at London South Bank. Now, um, it is a first-come, first-served basis, so you will have to uh, get a wiggle on, as they say, and uh, hopefully you'll, um, you'll snare yourself a ticket. And, and also, if you want a first-edition copy of the book, as Richard mentioned there in the interview, it's already selling in terms of pre-sales very well on Amazon and uh, on, on Titan's own books. If you Google Titan Books, it will take you to their website, where if you want to get that all-important first-edition copy... Um, and it is important, isn't it, Connor, for collectors? It's something that Ray Harryhausen himself saw the value of. A lot of Ray's library are, are first editions, aren't they, from from film books to architecture and arts?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Ray was a, a real book collector. It probably won't surprise you to hear. During his spell in the army, actually, uh, during shore leave or his time in New York, he would browse um, antique stores and antiquarian bookstores trying to pick up first editions of his favourite artists, people such as Gustav Dory and John Martins, and he would get their first edition copies of of books about those artists and uh, the people that inspired him. So this is a big part of our collection, is, is the library and really liked having first editions, and I know that a lot of race fans like to have the first edition it's uh, it 's got that kind of authenticity hot off the press and it 's going to be a, a a piece of some quality um Titan books if you haven 't purchased any of their publications before they they really put on am um, quite a special display and it 's going to be very much an enjoyable book to read it is and to actually get
0: hold of the first first edition physically, um, you might have to fly halfway across the world because um we have a very big announcement for you. It's that uh, we are going to be appearing for the very first time at Comic Con San Diego. So very much the uh, the headquarters of Comic Con, the home base, as it's considered, or high command, possibly, if uh, if you're into those things. So um, when when are we showing Connor, and what's what's going to be happening?
1: On July the twentieth at half past four, we will be doing a special presentation entitled "Ray Harryhausen: The Return of the Special Effects Godfather." And it'll be John and myself, and we'll be looking into some of the special areas of of Ray Harryhausen's archives that even some of his hardcore fans may not know a great deal about. So we're going to be delving into some of our announcements and some of our special projects, but also looking back as well at Ray Harryhausen's incredible career and creations. And there'll also be an opportunity... For the first time in the USA, I believe, unless I'm wrong, John, to see Movement Into Life, which is John's documentary from 1990.
0: That's right, yes. So it'll all take place in room 26AB at the Comic-Con San Diego. And as Connor said, you know, we're going to be announcing lots of exciting things and some major new exciting projects. So if you like big films and big announcements, then Comic-Con is the place to make big announcements so we'll be making some new announcements about some new projects and uh, that'll be very exciting we can't um, announce those plans before comic-con but we'd very much like to share them with you those who can't make it will see information on the facebook and twitter feeds and it should be an interesting time we did comic-con london um, about a year and a half ago and that was very very successful so we hope to repeat the same magic but bring something new so um, so no pressure, eh, Connor?
1: No, well, I think uh, American fans are always asking, when are we coming over? When are you going to start doing more events in the USA? Uh, because we happen to be be based in the UK, it's obviously, t- it takes a little more effort to go over. But this is going to be an incredibly worthwhile visit because we're going to get to talk a lot about the work that we're doing and meet some of Ray's most loyal fans I know that Ray actually attended San Diego Comic-Con around 10 years ago, and it seems fitting that we should carry the flame and um, continue to discuss Ray's incredible legacy with with the attendees at at the original and best Comic-Con. So we look forward to seeing you all there. Absolutely, and Tyson Books will have their own stand there, and I'm told
0: they'll have the very first copies off the presses of the new poster book. And, of course, we'll be previewing a part of it as part of our panel, as uh, Connor said, on uh, Friday the 20th of July at half past four. So you don't need to book if you're coming to a Comic-Con panel. You just need to get there on time because those seats are first come, first served. So we look forward to seeing as many of you there. Do come and say hello to us. We're going to have a little mini recorders and we're going to be chatting to fans and getting their opinions and, you know, hearing what you think. And it would uh, be lovely for you to appear in a future podcast as an audio file.
1: Yes, please do. We're going to be at the the whole weekend of Comic Con, so come and say hello. We will have plenty of time to speak to all of Ray's fans and tell you a bit more in person about some of the work that we're doing.
0: I must ask you, Connor, before we get into the Caroline and Vanessa interview, what did you have for dinner? Do you remember what the three of you had?
1: Uh, I certainly do. We went to an Edinburgh restaurant named Chop Chop, which is... uh, very authentic Chinese food, and I'm happy to say that was my choice, and uh, Caroline and Vanessa were delighted with, with the foods. It was really, really delicious. I recommend it to everybody. They're not sponsoring this podcast, but uh, Chop Chop is at a fantastic Chinese restaurant in Edinburgh, and we had a, we had a lovely time. Uh, but this was before dinner, so this is while we were, we were waiting for the taxi to pick us up. We decided to have a little chat about their long friendship and then later on their work together as part of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. So have a listen to Vanessa and Caroline, this is a a lovely discussion and a lovely interview between the both of them. So I'm joined today by two very special people. We have Ray's daughter, Vanessa Harryhausen and the star of Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Caroline Munro, and of course, they're both very famous for these roles and their involvement in the foundation. But what people may not know is that the two have been friends for a very long time now. I dare I say it, 45 years that you've known each other. What an incredible friendship.
3: That is so yeah. scary, isn't it? You were a, you were a tiny wee babby
4: when I met was, you. Yeah, you. I were. think I was about seven, six, you, seven. Yes, you were. Yeah, because we were just going to boarding school. Well, you were going, I oh, wasn't going. <laughs> Tammy,
3: yeah, Tammy Tammy was, yeah, my lovely, my lovely stepdaughter was going, and yes. that's how we, well, we met uh, through your dad, through the wonderful Ray. So that's how we, that's all, how
1: we, all stemming from the Golden Voyage of Sinbad yes, in 1972 absolutely. when the when the film was uh, was shot. And uh, what a nice, what a nice way of making friends and meeting each other. Do you remember the first time that you met Ray?
3: I went. Yes, I do, actually. I first met him and Charles Schneer in, it was called Portman Square in London, and it was where I was um, going for my audition, because it was via um, Brian Clements, who'd written the screenplay for Sinbad, and he'd suggested me for the role of Mariana, and... um, uh, uh, I think, Charles, especially Charles Schneer wanted, he said, no, 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 we wanted, we wanted a big American name, we, need, we want wreck Welsh and we want this and that. But I think your dad listened to Brian, yeah. and I went along and I did the audition. That's the first time I met him. And I just thought, I really liked him. You know, I really liked him. He was, Charles was quite...
1: Well, he More. was from New York, wasn't he? he yes, was he was courser. a new, very,
3: very straight yeah. talking. Mm-hmm. And but your dad had a very warm, warmness about him. Uh, he was kind of larger. Than, he had a big personality, but he was very warm and very mm. charming. And and I was very nervous. I was young, mm-hmm. you know. I was very, very nervous. I think I was what twenty-four or something yeah. ridiculous. So I was young, and I I knew from what Brian had said, that it was quite an important meeting to go along and meet these people. Um,
1: and at the time, although you said you met Ray and you liked him a lot, did I you did. have any inkling that you were going to then become friends for decades afterwards? Uh, N- I
3: mean, no, no, that, I mean, no, not at all. Having And having worked with him and then having met uh, Vanessa's mum, Diana, and then, and then meeting Vanessa, no, I had no idea that this would... Carry on for all these times, all these years.
1: And Vanessa, your memories are quite different because you were, were quite a bit younger. You were, you were still at at school when Mm -hmm. your dad was making uh, films like *The Golden Voyage*. So, what what was your perspective of the whole? You know, what your dad did for a living because what an incredible job to have and uh, what an exciting life to lead. Most people's.
4: Nice. yeah no um well i mean I, I was sort of shipped off to boarding school and in the holidays i managed to catch up with both my parents um and uh got to go sometimes on sets and uh i got to go on i don't know if it was the set was it the set for the fountain of it Destiny was Callum? it was and it was yeah. in
3: in madrid uh-huh. in sevilla sevilla, sevilla studios yeah. that's, that's so i was set. on the set for that yeah you yeah, was a
4: small tiny seeing that um, and then um, Caroline um, had her stepdaughter Tammy went to the same boarding school as I was going to, and we just struck up a firm friendship ever since. Really. No, it's Three quite
1: days. a nice image as well. The PTA or, or whatever the, the the kids' parents coming to pick yeah. them up the boarding school, and it's yeah. the Harry Housens and Caroline Monroe coming to pick up their there are two young daughters from
3: yeah, it, yeah we used school. to take them oh, I, for if days one parent, out if
4: one parent couldn't pick the other one up yeah. the other one would come in yeah. and take us out no so that's it, true it's
3: a brilliant school I mean but it was this is good. quite
1: a funny thought as well because this is the 1970s so this is yes. while you're doing Golden Voyage and then the Hammer films the yes, Bond films all yes. no, these huge films that people remember but yeah. in between them you're sorting out the tuck and oh, yeah, driving well, against yeah. the school oh, you, and it's hey, like,
3: normal, very stuff.
4: normal stuff down to earth normal stuff you know, I mean, you used to come walking with us in Holland Park and around the, um, it was the Commonwealth Institute, That's right, it, I High loved Street, it, because they had
3: exhibitions and yeah. things, that's
4: in London, yeah. right in the centre of yeah. London,
3: it was fantastic. And then, so. take you ice skating.
4: Yes, oh, at Queen, Queensway, wasn't Queensway. it? Queensway. Yeah, we used to, Caroline used to drive us up in there. In my old banger. Yes, <laughs> it was great, it was, it was great fun, and we used to go around and have half a day skating around that.
1: Yeah, it's a nice thought. Now, like going back to Golden Voyage, um, you both obviously. Had very different perspectives of the filming, but what are your memories of some of the co-stars? Because I know that it was one of Ray's greatest casts with Tom Baker, yeah, Carol Christian, yeah. your good self, and uh, it's one and that John the fans Phillip, really love. And of who course, was an John amazing Simba. am yeah.
3: um, to 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 me, I think it was an incredible Simba because he he worked so hard at it. He really worked at the sword fighting, and you know he really did. He practiced so hard and that you had the dialectician there doing the going through all the dialogue and stuff and so the, 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 he really was on it and then tom of mm. course who got the he got through simbad he he got uh, dr who they'd seen him in that and they thought he was amazing in that so, that led yeah. to that led landing role in Doctor Who. On Doctor Absolutely, Who, so. yeah. what, a, what a
1: nice, again, a nice moment to be part yeah. of to see him then move on to that. And he was, I mean, he, he
3: was so perfect as the as, as the I mean, yes, as Kura. Uh, the 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 casting, I think, I think your dad and Charles did really good casting on the film. Everybody was kind of right for the roles. Mm-hmm. I think if you cast a film right. And you know your characters. You know what you're wanting from your characters. Usually, you're onto something good, and they did it really
1: well. And unbelievably, this is a fact that I looked up, and I, I didn't believe it when I first read it. The whole film, Golden Void of Sinbad, was made for less than one million dollars, which just and seems incredible dollars. these days. Wow. Um,
3: oh, is geez. that with post and everything? Yeah, post the whole production. film,
1: uh, I think it had a budget of one million, and it came in under budget actually, thanks to. Good old Charles Schneer. Yeah. Oh no, he was, oh, a, he was a, a yes.
3: They were so careful. And with what,
1: a, what an iconic film! When you think of films that came oh out a few God. years later, like Star Wars, which were I think fifteen oh, million. Yeah, all the way. Up and to this was million. dollars, so that yeah, would have been yeah. how
3: much? About seven hundred. Yeah, but seven hundred fifty thousand. Which would you know? Which is by today's standard. That
1: do would do you, the catering, perhaps, yes, or perhaps. on a film these days. But, that,
3: that, but uh, yes, down to Charles, but also down to Ray. Being sorry, a master frugal, mm. but also he did everything by himself. You know, all the special effects. Or I say special effects, but they were special effects, and all the cre- he did everything by himself. So that really made a difference. He wanted to because they were his babies. Mm. They were his creation. They were his.
1: And as a, and a, a young actress on set, mm. what was your perspective on Ray? Like, did you understand just how much he had been involved with? you know, you're standing in front of the foot of destiny. It's something he's designed. Oh, yeah. or, you know, everything is oh, no, from his one mind.
3: At, from his mind, but also um, being dyslexic. I, I, have, I have a visual a visual thing, and that really helped me um, in, in the imagining of stuff. You have to kind of become... For me, it's like becoming a child again. It's channeling that inner child and imagining how you used to play as a child, because everything you used to play as a child is real. You know, when you're a child, it's real. You are a cowboy. You are. I was always an Indian. Right? <laughs> but but you know, you you're always that. You you become that. So so it was it was very much a question of channeling. And then he'd also do these amazing illustrations. So he'd show us this yeah. beforehand. We couldn't obviously see the creatures because the creatures weren't. Uh, were well, there then but he'd show us these wonderful storyboards story yeah. that he'd done he said now this Caroline this is this is what you're going to see you're going to see this 18 foot centaur this is what you're going to see it has the eye and the sound of it and the smell of it and the everything of it so you'd imagine that so he really painted the picture and he would direct those scenes Whereas Gordon and Hester would do the
4: dialogue scenes and then Ray would step in and do all the. And I mean, my memories are of, of coming home sometimes from boarding school and seeing Dad sketching at the easel upstairs and at Ilchester, you know, like drawing the Griffin scene, you know, um, and the Fountain of Destiny and other things on his easel. And it was just amazing to see that these black and white pictures... And then all, obviously the little storyboards that he took for the cast. It was just. Would actually come yeah. to fruition. Yeah, and then, and then you see the creatures on the, on the screen, and, yeah. and not to mention the models coming to, you know, being made upstairs yes. in our own house. It was like, wow.
1: So you are watching the creation. Caroline remember, seeing yes. them and saying, this is yes. what's going to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm there when seeing they were,
3: it. When she yeah. actually saw them. And did being
1: you, have, made. What, do you have much of a concept at the time? Like, when dad's finished drawing this, it's going to be. An amazing spectacle on the big screen, or, or you know, were you starting to to link the two.
4: Yeah, no, I did. I did link it. I just, I just found it incredible. From a piece of metal and and, and foam, and and then the the how do I describe it? I guess the animation thing, and it coming alive on screen. It did. And having that it model there, alive. and I can touch it with a fur, and yeah, and then it's suddenly moving on the screen. It's the with armature, all the actors, isn't it? and everything, it was just magical, it was just just wonderful, he was so clever.
1: Um, just to go back to the actors for a second, um, I know that uh, one of the actors that you met on set was Kirk Christian, uh-huh. uh, who were then going to star in the next Sinbad film too, uh, Sinbad and the Eye of a Tiger, and I, I know you were very fond of him as uh, just as a, a lovely presence on set and somebody that you yeah, no, might he, he was Yeah,
4: no, he was very kind, I remember... And um, very hunky. So <laughs> well I don't, I don't know You were too I, young for yeah. that. Yes. Um but, but I remember us um they used to have an airplane hangar where everybody cast crew actors everybody ate in this big hangar and there was big long trestle tables and we all just sat together um and um Kurt and Pat Wayne and Pat Wayne and everybody else sat sat next to us and just talked like normal and you know for a little child for them to you know, sometimes as a child you can be overlooked, but they were all just lovely and just very normal and friendly, and it was just an honour, really.
1: I know uh, it's, it's lovely memories, and it's uh, thinking now 45 years of the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. It hasn't aged at all. It looks like whenever we watch it, whenever we have screenings, mm-hmm. I know that the both of you were. Uh, recently at a screening at Regent Street in London. London. Yeah. And yes, we what an incredible reaction we got from everybody. I mean, most people had seen it before, but they were seeing it as it should be yeah. on the big screen. It
4: looked beautiful. It was good colour. And, uh, yeah, Whatever good... that
3: was, it was something different. Was it being it? been
1: restored in 4K. So That's it, it's, 4K. Uh, oh my it's God, properly, it looked it's,
3: beautiful. It's very sharp.
1: You can almost say now it's looks better now than it did in 1973. Kind of. It looked really sparkling, yeah. and it
3: was beautiful, wasn't yeah. it? I, yeah. I just it just came so to fun. life again. Yeah. I thought it looked fabulous.
1: And that's what we love we to, to be able to take part in these screenings and see race films in, yeah. in older glory and have the sound, of beautiful uh, score by Miklas Roja and all the other yeah. elements. It really is a special film with all these different parts coming together and just oh, making it perfect. Both of you are now involved in helping to promote and preserve Ray's legacy, and both from very different perspectives. We have Ray's daughter and somebody who worked with Ray and then became a lifelong friend. How do you feel um, that Ray's work is viewed in the year 2018, so many years after his final film and so many years after you worked with him?
3: For me personally, I think it's even more revered now than possibly it was then, because they realised what he did was so... Ahead of its time, mm. and you look at all the filmmakers from Steven Spielberg to Tim Burton to, to Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson mm-hmm. Joe Dante, all these amazing artists, Randy Cook. Mm-hmm. You know all these extraordinary people that looked away. As I always call him the Godfather of the special effects or of the stop motion, because to me that's what he was. He was a true um, inventor, if you like, of the process of this. Dynamation, this, this extraordinary process. So yes, I think for me, when I go to conventions, these shows or or film festivals, and they show the films, I mean people are as intrigued, if not more so now. And it's generations of people; mm-hmm. they bring their children, you know, and their their grandchildren. So it's extraordinary the longevity. So I, I think the films are viewed um, extraordinarily with 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 amazing, you know, people love them, people like them even more now.
4: Um,
1: and Vanessa, how does it make you feel when you are at a screening, such as at Regent Street, and there's, mm-hmm. it still packs out the cinema, people still, people every really hand in the room goes up, everyone wants to know about what your dad did and how he did it, and you know, so many years later, but people are, it feels as fresh as ever.
4: Yeah, no, I feel humbled, I feel emotional, I have a, a wave of, of different emotions going through me, very proud. Um, and also um, very pleased that the fans still want to keep, you know, as, as Daddy said, it's it's all the folk out there that keep his memory alive, you know, um, and he was very humbled by all that. And, uh, you know, the few people I met in Los Angeles and Oklahoma and, and that, their reaction was just wonderful. And we will try and, and adhere to Dad's wishes through the foundation and look after his his um collection and get it out there and do a a scholarship thing for the young young folks and you know just hopefully continue on
1: when he wanted the world to see it he He wanted people to learn he He wanted
4: wanted it all together he didn't want it uh, you know um spread all over the place he wanted one main base like and he's got it yeah he's got it now safely
1: and we've got big plans to like the people who may not have seen Ray's models before all get to see it and really experience. Uh, our exhibition in Oklahoma last year mm-hmm. was, was a huge success and there's, mm-hmm. there's plenty more to come yeah. and it's thanks to the work of the foundation and of you two wonderful ladies, helping oh, and all of your no. incredible contributions to Ray's legacy. Thank Th- you.
4: Very
1: thanks much. you both. Thank you very and what much. What
4: a legacy.
0: That's fabulous. It's nice to have um, that more conversational tone, isn't it? I think when you're around a dinner table or you're in a much more sort of familiar and, and, and f- family-style setting, then the conversation tends to be much more of an ebb and flow, doesn't it, Connor?
1: Well, I think that's the impression I get, is that Caroline and Vanessa really do feel like family. Um, you'll, you'll have heard in that interview... Ray and Diana sent Vanessa to the same school as Caroline's children so they would be waiting outside the school gates or or helping with the school runs and, and so on and it's a, really, it's a really lovely image. In the 1970s when they were all making incredible movies as well they, they had the kind of domestic duties of, of parents to carry out at the same time so they've been friends and they've practically been family for, for so many years and that really comes out uh, what a warm conversation and, and what a lovely thing to be a part of.
0: Absolutely. And next time I'm in Edinburgh, which will hopefully be very soon, you must take me to, uh, is it Chop Chops, you said?
1: Chop Chop. Yes, it's a uh, it's nice Chinese food. It's a—it's uh, uh, very authentic, very healthy and um, it it was delicious. Uh, we'll definitely be going back.
0: Fabulous. Now, as part of this summer special, although we're not on the road like the Radio 1 Roadshow or TV summer specials, they'd always be at a beach somewhere, wouldn't they, selling... Uh, Uh, sending out sort of balloons and candy floss Um, we're going to be looking ahead to what's coming up for the rest of 2018 so those of you who've been following our special music podcasts may or may not know that Intrada Records who are very much the Rolls Royce of soundtrack releasing um, have released uh, something that we thought was unreleasable the soundtrack to the Valley of Gwangi and so the full score including some outtake cues and some um some source material that was used within the film uh, for the circus and so on uh, has uh, has been released on CD, and we're going to be speaking to some of the boys down at Intrada to find out where they found it and uh, and what it's all about. But first, here's a here's a quick taste of what you can expect. Connor, are you excited listening to that?
1: Yes it was a real surprise to see that Entrada had discovered these original elements from the Guanji soundtrack. As you say they'd long been considered lost and so so many years after the film you, you feel that it's unlikely that these things are going to turn up. So we're going to discuss a little about how Entrada Intrada. Located these uh, original score elements and were able to put together such a wonderful release. Entrada uh, Records always put together fantastic CD and vinyl releases with lots of very informative liner notes. So I recommend the the album to to all fans of of Ray's films and all soundtrack collectors. But there's something interesting about lost treasures appearing you know ne- nearly fifty years on, and how exciting it is to hear all of these soundtrack elements for the first time.
0: And we have a couple of film retrospectives, Connor, as well, don't we? Which which ones are
1: those? Well, this year marks the 55th anniversary of Jason and the Argonauts and we've been celebrating the film throughout the summer. We've had three major screenings of the film in in Glasgow and Edinburgh and, to cap off our exhibition at the Valance House Museum in Dagenham, but the celebrations continue. We'll be we'll be delving into the archive to discuss Jason and the Argonauts, which was Ray's favourite from all of his films. It's the one he said he was most proud of. Um, it's a lot of people's favourite film. Full stop. And it's one that has been a, a real delight to to celebrate and to talk to fans about because it's a it's a landmark in cinema history.
0: Excellent. And uh, Golden Voyage of Sinbad. How how old is Golden Voyage these days?
1: Well, that's that's quite a young film, that's only 45 years old, but that was released in 1973 um, as you'll have heard from Caroline's interview. It's, uh, It's a film which is still as fresh today as it was back in the 1970s and in fact there was a screening of the film at the Regent Street Cinema in London this February and it's actually better than ever because it's been restored in 4K, has stereo sound and It looks wonderful. It's such a fresh feeling film with such an exciting cast and possibly some of Ray's most iconic and creative creatures to date. So we'll be delving into the golden voyage of Sinbad and, of course, exploring Ray's thoughts on that film too.
0: And to round up our music uh, specials this year, we will, of course, deal with all of the films that we haven't dealt with through to the last Uh, to Sinbad and Clash of the Titans which will uh, which will probably get its own episode because we have um, we have some interesting news about Clash of the Titans and the score and the music for that and the involvement of legendary composer John Barry so more to tell you and more for you to listen to uh, much later in the year and that's a that's a very exciting um, episode I'm sure that's going to be a highlight for those of you who've been following our music music specials Um, And there's a teaser for for 2020 as well, which seems like a long way off, Connor. but in fact is sort of just 18 months away. (laughs) When I say that, it makes me a little bit scared. Um, What's happening for 2020 that you can tell us?
1: Well, in 2020, I can announce a teaser for now. There's going to be an exhibition of Ray Harryhausen's life and work in Scotland in the summer of 2020. It's going to be the biggest... Ray Harryhausen exhibition which has ever taken place is going to be monumental in its scope and we're going to be delving into all of Ray's films and Ray's life to showcase material that even some of the most hardcore Harryhausen fans in the world will never have seen so I can't say any more than that just now similar to the comic-con situation we'll have some announcements coming soon but uh, just suffice to say that Please leave a a window in your schedule for the summer of 2020 because we've got something very special lined up and although two years seems like a long way away, um, with exhibitions like this it's actually no time at all. We have a lot of work to do, we've got a lot of exciting preparations to make, so keep an eye on our Facebook, our Twitter and our websites for for more announcements. Uh, But I I can't wait to, to get started on this project, it's incredibly exciting
0: yes indeed and uh, and more news um, in future podcasts now to finish off we're going to listen again to Richard Hollis who goes into some of the more technical and artistic details about the history and the art form of uh, movie posters and uh, we hope that you'll all join us at the BFI or at San Diego or at least on the very next podcast so um, we'll leave the uh, the final words here to uh, to Richard Hollis <laughs> So Richard, what can you tell me about some of the artists on these posters?
2: Well, it's quite a wide variety. The problem with film poster artists, and and, and I think this is the the frustrating part about it in a way, is that some of these guys were really talented. Um, And there have only really been probably about half a dozen names that people can kind of remember now or are familiar with or even aware of who actually were the artists behind film posters a lot of film companies would hire artists to write to design these posters to paint them for them and then uh once the film came out they were kind of forgotten in fact even some of the artists couldn't even get their names uh or even to get their signatures on the posters so the, the, what i found with the doing the ray harry house and the movie posters book was that it was annoying sometimes that we had some great pieces of art just couldn't track down who actually was responsible for them But fortunately, there were some other artists who we were able to find out more about. Sometimes very sketchy details, but a little bit about their background. Um, For example, the uh, Italian artist, Alfredo Capitani. Now he was actually a set designer, film set designer, Um, but he did some fabulous work for one of Ray's early black and white films. It came from Beneath the Sea, which was 1955. Um, stunning artwork of, of the tentacles of the, um, of the octopus coming out of the sea and, and, and grabbing a boat and pulling it down under the waves. Uh, and in the top right hand side of the picture, you've got the photo, a close up of the actual actors in the film. Um, artwork that's amazing. It looked, you know, for what would consider to be in those days, um, a black and white B movie, really. Uh, this was this was sort of state of the art kind of paintings um, to promote this film in Europe. And he wasn't alone. There was another Italian artist called Anselmo Ballister who did some of the artwork for Ray's films like 20 Million Miles to Earth and Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. And again, this artwork is amazing. Uh, the rocket ship crashing into the sea for um, 20 Million Miles to Earth, which brought the Emir to the Earth at the time. And um, uh, this, th- these, these, th- these are just incredible graphics that really catch your eye and make you think, I've just got to go see that film. And they really ran... Um, circles around a lot of the UK and American artwork that was being done. Those, of course, been done by a lot of anonymous artists who we didn't know the names of. There were exceptions. There was an Austrian artist called Gustav Rayberger who did a lot of American art. And his artwork for the animal world, which was a documentary made by Erwin Allen in 1956, which Ray did the dinosaur sequence for, is amazing because the dinosaur sequence so was so important that they used that on the poster. All the posters use this dinosaur sequence really as their selling point, um, and it was only a ten-minute segment, 50 minute segment of the film. But Gustav Reyberger did this fabulous image of a Ceratosaurus fighting a Tyrannosaurus, a Triceratops with a Brontosaurus in the background, a vol- exploding volcano. Um, classic piece of vintage dinosaur art, uh, and he did a lot of other film posters as well. But this one really stands out as, as, as an astounding piece of work. Um, and it's nice to know that we did find out a little bit about the guy. He was an Austrian artist and he'd worked in New York doing illustration and commercial art until he'd been picked up by Warner Brothers to do film posters. So that was great to find that out, find out a little bit more about this person. Um, Roger Suby was a favourite French artist with American studios. They liked his work. And although he did a lot of 50s science fiction material, um, he actually did some very stunning artwork for Ray's 1964 film, First Men in the Moon, and... Um, and what is nice about it is because it was geared for the European market more than the American market. The uh, American posters are, as far as I know, still, unfortunately, however beautiful they are, were painted by someone who we don't know the name of. But on the foreign posters, the French, the um, German, the Italian posters, Suby's artwork got spread across Europe. And it's a very nice image of uh, Lionel Jeffries and Edward Judd jumping about on the moon in their space suits while uh, Martha Hire sits on the top of the sphere watching them. Martha Hire actually isn't in a space suit. But then in Europe, of course, it was much better to have the women more scantily clad than it was on the American and UK posters. Of course, there's the One Million Year B.C. poster. I mean, the Rackle Welch One Million Years B.C. poster, which is iconic in itself. Uh, Everybody thinks back to the 1960s, and you think back to um, Carnaby Street and Flower Power and whatever, and the 1960s is iconic poster of One Million Years B.C., and Jack Thurston was the American artist who did that image for the American artwork. And uh, Tom Chantrell did it for the, um, the British posters. Chantrell's work, I think, has a slight edge over Thurston's. The, the pose is identical, but the facial detail is different. And of course, um, Chantrell had done a lot of posters for the Hammer Film Studios. So his, his drawing of people was particularly good. His artwork on people was particularly good. And, and it, is a, it is a great image. And and again, it would drag people into the cinema. And apart from these great artists doing all these fabulous paintings, how would you not want to go and see films with bylines like A Colossus of Adventure, two billion years in the making, nothing less than a miracle in motion pictures. This was the time, and Ray was lucky for this, this was the time when film posters were, um, were selling points in themselves. The ballyhoo of selling a movie was so big and so enormous that people were just dragged into the cinemas. They were taken by this fabulous artwork, by these very talented artists. And then they had an opportunity to go and see these films and been excited by bylines like Thrill to the Seven Wonders of the Moon World. You just couldn't go wrong. And I think that's the great thing about this Harryhausen poster book that I've done, is it's given me an opportunity to bring all these things together so that we can thumb through the pages and just see page after page of these wonders Really before our eyes, not only from these fabulous graphics by these very talented and clever artists, but these fabulous selling points and these PR departments that the studios had at the time to sell these movies and make them the best they were. And, of course, the the genius of Ray Harryhausen for bringing them all to life. Well, this is the
0: time when the printed media, of course, was king. So much the same way that now we think of social media and the internet as, as, as being the dominant force, when opinion forming and so on. It was back in the day, you know, when the newspapers and how you ran your advertisements and the cost and squeezing one in. Um, it was essential, wasn't it? Because um, often some of the posters were reduced to the size
2: of a postage stamp and they'd be in black and white. So you really had to make it sing out. Well, to me, I think that's the problem with social media. I think that, that yes, it's great to have all this technology, but everything to me is reduced down in size now. So, so social media has just reduced everything down to the size of a, of a laptop screen. What's great about the cinema is, and the cinema always is this for me, even if it's changed over the years, the cinema is about presentation, it's about showmanship. It's about going and sitting in a giant auditorium with lots of other people watching this huge cinema screen um, and watching a film and enjoying it. It's an experience you cannot get in the home. I don't care how big your cinema projector is. Um, you just can't get that experience at home. You have to go to a cinema for this. And this was a time when films were promoted the same way. The razzmatazz was as big as the cinema screens. You know, we had 24 sheet hoardings. We had walls covered in film posters. Um, there were film posters spread out through that, through the high street on on poster boards none of this exists anymore it's all dependent now on the public going and finding it themselves by going online or going on social media or word of mouth Um, you didn't have to do that then all this stuff was around you it surrounded you you couldn't escape it on the sides of buses it was everywhere and that's why I think that's that's why I think this artwork is so important and that's why it's important that a book like this keeps that artwork alive and lets people not forget it because film posters were about they were works of art. They were paintings and they were meant to promote something and get you interested in it. There's a lazy attitude in cinema today to throw that away and let um, and and basically let social media do it for you. And I don't think that's the way forward. I don't think they'll be doing big poster books about the, in the future, the kind of films and the way they promote films today as they did in in the 40s, 50s and 60s, which I say was the golden period of film, and the period which Ray worked in, which was fantastic.
0: If they did it today, it'd be a series of thumbnails, a photo montage, it would look all the same, wouldn't it? Well, ways. it
2: would, it would. It, it wouldn't be, uh, it just wouldn't have that same uh, appeal at all. Um, I mean, obviously there's some great movies being made, uh, but the way they're promoted now, uh, it, it spreads it so thin that you wouldn't just get the power of a poster book that you'd have from the past. And that's why you find that when you look at modern posters, when you get a poster book that comes up to date, Um, uh, and you look at some of the more recent posters, they're terribly disappointing when you reflect on the artwork that made up the posters of old.
0: So when we talk about the artwork and we talk about the posters in your book, you have found really original print runs, if you like, first edition posters from these movies. Um, But what about the original artworks themselves? Because they would have been created using inks and charcoals and pens, of course, on on a form of paper or cotton paper. Um, Do any of those exist? Are they with the studios? Are they with the artists? Have they survived?
2: Um, Well, unfortunately, a lot of this artwork probably has been lost over the years. I imagine that some of it would, of course, would have remained in the studio archives. Uh, I, I know that some studios, like the Disney archives, they, they have a very extensive collection of the original artwork produced for their film posters, in-house and, and exterior poster art. But a lot of studios would have thrown all that kind of thing away. They wouldn't have considered it worth keeping. That would have, got, that would have been the same for press material too, like the front of house stills, the lobby card sets, the, even the press books, which told you about all these fabulous finds. Um, there are exceptions. Um, Bruno Napoli, an Italian um, artist, who did a lot of uh, later films, uh, sort of 70s, 80s films, who did some beautiful artwork for Clash of the Titans. Um, He also did a lot of Disney and other science fiction horror titles. A lot of his artwork um, is in storage with his family. Um, A lot of it was returned to him. And there was an exhibition um, in Italy uh, a year or so ago of his art, um, including the Clash of the Titans posters. So it's quite nice to think that some artists, probably some of the later artists, actually were able to get some of their work back. Um, and, and and look after it. Um, Reynolds Brown, uh, an artist who is very famous for painting so many of the of the really famous fifty science fiction f- and fantasy movies, from the Time Machine to um, the Creature from the Black Lagoon and whatever. He um, uh, he's so well known and so 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 established as an artist in his own right um, that his film poster art did actually go into a private archive, and, and a book was produced about it. But this is rare. And sadly, I think, when you look at some of the wonderful art work that accompanies race films, you see that so much of it probably is lost.
0: But if it can be found, perhaps, Richard, a second book from you on the
2: subject? Well, definitely. And, well, perhaps some people listening to to this might know they've got it in their attic. And if they have, please get in contact. (laughs)
1: Copyright in The Ray Harryhausen Podcast is owned by The Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2018. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com, where you can also find our Facebook and Twitter links.